beautiful Sabbath day and glad to be able to, to have one every seventh day. They're wonderful. Well, let's go back to 1 Corinthians. We got down to chapter 10 last week. In chapter 9, he had been discussing uh, some the situation about uh, whether or not the ministry should be paid or not and made it clear that God had given that. And then back in chapter 8, we had talked about how we were to be careful not to cause anyone to offend. Um, so he picks some of that up and makes a little larger picture in chapter 10. He closed chapter 9 with the thought that we're all running in a race, that we need to win the race. Now, really, we're in a race of one. We're not competing against each other. We're competing uh, with ourselves to overcome, to grow, to be like Christ. And if we grow and overcome, we will have run our personal race and won it. And he says that he will reserve for us a place in his kingdom if we win that race. Now, he does say that in a human race, everybody runs, uh, but that doesn't mean that we in our race are competing against anyone else. Yes, we're all running, aren't we? But we're running individually. And he tells us to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, not to work out anybody else's but our own. Now, we can help each other, encourage each other, strengthen one another, and iron can sharpen iron with one another. But really, it's a personal race to become like Christ. And that prize is there for all of us, and this is an interesting race in that sense, is we're not competing with each other to see who wins. We're competing alongside one another in an individual race. And instead of competing and tromping each other down, we're there to encourage and strengthen one another in our personal race. And that's what he says, that he has to keep under his own body, bringing it into subjection, lest after he had preached to others, he should become a castaway himself. So his relationship and his run with Christ and the Father was an individual thing, but he wanted to help others along the way. Now, with that in mind, we go to chapter 10 where he says, Moreover, brethren or brothers, I would not that you should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptized to Moses in the cloud and in the sea. So it's a takeoff on what he's saying just above, that they all came out of Mitzrayim, they all came through the sea, they were not competing with each other, they were marching. Each marched on his own two legs. Uh, you weren't being carried, maybe, unless you were a baby or a cripple. In some cases, I don't know. But he's saying they were all baptized there, coming through the water. They were below water level. And there was a cloud and the sea. And Moses, in that sense, baptized them all, he says. So the whole bunch was baptized. 
Now, what was available to one was available to everyone else. Now, Paul preached to all the people that could hear him, uh, not just to one or two, but to all of them. And God was there for all of these. They all had access to the same things. None had access more than another. Let's see that in verse 3. They did all eat the same spiritual food. They all drink, they did all drink the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. So he was there, and he was available to all of them. Uh, in that sense, in equal portion. We all have access to the Father and to the Son through the Holy Spirit that was given to comfort us, to lead us, to help us, to guide us to them. So we all have that access. But with many of them, God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. So they were all there. They all had the same access. They all had the same blessings. God did not treat them in that sense differently. Uh, and yet, some he was not well pleased with. And we know that all of those over, what was it, 40, uh, were going to have to die there in the wilderness uh, because of the murmuring and complaining and so on, which Paul will get into here in a little bit. So we know that here in the end time as well, uh, there is a spiritual wilderness that is developed with the death of worldwide, and people are wandering in the wilderness, and some God is not pleased with. And in fact, again, the vast majority He is not pleased with. And we have all been overthrown and spewed out. It's a little bit different scenario today. There He just let them wander until they all died. Here it's a spiritual application, and we've all been spewed out spiritually, and most will die. Ninety uh, percent of the church will die physically in the tribulation, just like those people died back then. Hopefully repenting first, but dying. And they'll be not only in a spiritual wilderness at that point, but they'll be in a physical wilderness with the beast and Satan out seeking the remnant of her seed and trying to kill every last one of them. And if they have any of the light of God, any of the Spirit of God, Satan can see them very easily. Uh, that light he does not like. Uh, it is very obtrusive to him. So he wants to put out everyone who has any of the light of God. Isn't it interesting that Satan uses light, or the illumined ones, or the, the lightened, enlightened ones, uh, or the ones that he is trying to uh, deceive into thinking that they're in the light instead of in darkness. But many of them who claim to be lights openly worship Satan. Now these things, verse 6, were our examples to the intent we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. He goes into some of the problems they had, so I won't introduce it ahead of time. We'll get there in here in just a minute. But, uh, neither be you idolaters, as were some of them. 
As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Moses was up on Sinai uh, conferring with God and receiving a codified law, a law which they already knew and understood, but he set it out in his own handwriting for them. But they put themselves ahead of God. There was the idolatry. Neither let us commit fornication, as some of them committed, and fell in one day 23,000. <coughs> that was a separate time. So the first time that he rehearses here is when they took off their clothes and all began to fornicate and adulterate right at the foot of Mount Sinai. God was not at all pleased with that. And then the time that he's referring to about the 23,000 is in Numbers 25. And I think we'll go back there and rehearse this since Paul brings it up. Numbers 25. And Israel abode in Shittim. I, that word may not mean what modern vernacular does, but uh, that's what they were pretty much living in using modern vernacular, so it's kind of interesting. Anyway, the people began to commit whoredom with the daughters of Moab. So the Moabs and Ammonites were around then, just as they are today. God pronounces uh, trouble on Moab and Ammon in the book of Isaiah and other places because of what they did. And they were known for not only whoredoms, but incest through their father Lot. And they called the people under the sacrifices of their gods. Now, the whoredom was bad enough. But the whoredom led to the worship of other gods than the true God. Now, if you have trouble with that, uh, go back and look at Solomon. He started out pretty good, but when he got all those foreign wives from all over the world, they began to turn his heart to their gods, because a wife wants her husband to believe what he believes, and she will influence him, if at all possible, to do that. Uh, didn't we have a strong man with long hair? And uh, a woman that he began to fornicate with caused his death and the death of many Israelites and many Philistines, for that matter, uh, because that's what happens when you start dealing with strange women. So, fornication leads to false worship of false gods. Anyway, they joined themselves to Baal. And the anger of the Eternal was kindled against Israel. Verse 4, And the Lord said to Moses, Take all the heads of the people and hang them up before the Eternal against the sun, that the fierce anger of the Eternal may be turned away from Israel. So he held those in charge responsible and had them hung facing the sun. Sounds pretty severe. Well, the sin was pretty severe. When we turn from God and turn to fornication, it is a very, very, very serious affront to God. Uh, 
And Moses said to the judges of Israel, Slay you every one his men that were joined to Baal Peor. So in this particular case, God caused the people to be slain by the sword or by hanging, uh, by other people, by those in charge. And behold, one of the children of Israel came and brought unto his brethren a Midianitish woman in the sight of Moses and in the sight of all the congregation of the children of Israel who were weeping before the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. So here you had a place where they had hung the leaders and killed those who had taken Ammonite or Moabite women. And then... They were trying to turn to God, trying to repent. They were weeping outside of the altar. And here trots in one guy with another wrong woman, right in front of them all. And when Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he rose up from among the congregation and took a javelin in his hand. And he went after the man of Israel into the tent and thrust both of them through, the man of Israel and the woman through her belly. He was on top of her, in other words. So the plague was stayed from the children of Israel. That's an interesting thing, what Phineas did. Now, he did, he did not act without some precedent there. Let's understand that. Sometimes when we think we're trying to help God, we get in the way like us are trying to to uh, steady the ark and dying instantly. So you kind of have to pick your place and know what you're doing. <laughs> uh, you act in the wrong way at the wrong time, and you can die. But here, God had already shown that anyone who did this was to die. So in this case, when that uh, man brought in another woman, in spite of all this, he killed them both. And it says that those who died in the plague were 24,000. Paul said 23. You might have to look it up in the Greek and Hebrew to see which is actually correct. Might be a translation issue or something. I don't know. And the Eternal spoke to Moses saying, Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, has turned my wrath away from the children of Israel while he was zealous for my sake among them, that I consume not the children of Israel in my jealousy. So the act of one man caused many, many, many more from actually dying. He intervened and did the right thing before God, and that took God's anger away. That just one man would stand against what was going on. The others were weeping and praying before the altar, but here was a man who took action, and God was very pleased with that. <clears throat> Wherefore say, Behold, I give to him my covenant of peace, and he shall have it, and his seed after him even the covenant of an everlasting priesthood, because he was zealous for his God and made an atonement for the children of Israel. He brought them back together. Now, doesn't he tell us in Isaiah 58, if we will fast properly and take our foot off his Sabbath and keep it properly, that he will cause us 
to heal the breach between God and his people. So just as Phineas stood, we have to stand for God and for his Sabbath. Pretty soon, they're going to try to kill all Sabbath keepers. So this is a very, very real thing. And those who have the courage and the strength, the faith, the bravery, to stand and keep the Sabbath in spite of all this, will be healers of the breach. And they have to keep it according to the way God wants it kept. And he explains that a bit in Isaiah 58 and other places. So, standing in the breach can become a very, very important thing. Nevertheless, many died until someone stood up and was valiant for the truth, as Jeremiah puts it, I think, in chapter 9. So, let's go back then to verse 9 of 1 Corinthians 10. Neither let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed of serpents. Now, that's in Numbers 21. So let's go back and review what Paul is talking about here. He uses it as an example, but it's an example that we can pay attention to and maybe learn from. Anyway, verse 4 of chapter 21, They journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to compass the land of Edom, and the soul of the people were much discouraged because of the way. Uh, God gave us too rough a road to hoe. Uh, the trail isn't good enough. The Edomites are here, and they're against us and don't like us. And on and on, uh, they became discouraged. Now, God had brought them out of Mitzrayim. He had taken them across the Red Sea. He had delivered them. He had given them water. He had given them food. He gave them quail when the manna wasn't good enough for them. I mean, what can you do for a people? And then they got discouraged because things weren't always to their liking. Now, did God say everything would be to our liking? No. He said there would be trials, troubles, tribulations, temptations, difficulties. Uh, Christ himself said it was hard to swim upstream instead of downstream. And that it would be like going through the eye of a needle for a camel, which may have been that gate at Jerusalem that they had to get on their knees. Of course, they're looking at the wrong Jerusalem over there when they interpret it that way in the wrong gate. So I don't know for sure just what that all means, but if you've seen a needle, it has a very small eye. My eyes are getting to the point that I can barely get a thread through one. And uh, a camel going through it would not be easy either. So Christ said it's going to be hard, difficult, and so on for us. And it got a little hard for these people. And Oh, my, I'm discouraged. I quit. I'm done. Is that the way you run a race? <laughs> The people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no bread, neither is there any water, and our soul loathes this light bread. We can't stand the manna you made specially for us that has every ingredient you need. 
Well, they complained. Israelites are known to murmur and complain, if you've ever noticed that. I, I wasn't alive back then, but uh, I've been alive now for some years, and I've been around the Church of God for probably 65, a little over 65 of those, and I have seen an awful lot of murmuring and complaining. And I've done some myself off and on, uh, you know. It's a trait we tend to have. It's a trait of humanness, and it is a particular trait of Israel and their uh, their uh, relationship with God. <clears throat> so what did God do? He sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and much people of Israel died. But here's a plague of snakes. That would be one of my least admired plagues. I, I don't know. I think I get along with frogs and flies better than snakes. Uh, but that's what he sent. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Eternal and against you. Pray to the Eternal that he take away the serpents from us. And Moses prayed for the people. How many times was this repeated? Rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat, over and over. So Moses prayed, and the Eternal said to Moses, Make you a fiery serpent, and set it upon a pole. And it shall come to pass that everyone that is bitten, when he looks upon it, shall live. Now, if you don't follow God's instruction here, which was pretty simple, and you got bit, you'd die anyway. And Moses made a serpent of brass and put it on a pole, and it came to pass that if a serpent had bitten any man, when he beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. I think it's interesting that he used a serpent, and then he put a serpent on a pole. Now, who is the ultimate serpent? That would be Satan the devil. And Satan is trying to kill us all. Though well, God sent fiery serpents, snakes, that bite the way Satan bites. So then a serpent was hung on a pole. It doesn't say whether it was dead or alive. I would assume it was dead. I do not want to nail a living snake to a pole myself, but <laughs> you might get bit. Well, Satan can kill us. And God said, take a good look at what I think was probably a dead snake. Now, I sent Satan among you. What are you going to do about it? Look, what's his fate? And what's yours going to be if you follow after Satan? And murmuring and complaining against God or the leaders he sends, or sins, infuriates God. We look to the wrong leaders and we start dying. And we look at maybe a dead snake on a pole and we say, oh, I was looking at the wrong thing. And maybe God used that as an example. 
I'm bigger than the snake. Look at the snake. Here's what you've been doing. Here's what you've been worshiping. Here's what you've been following. Take a good look, and I'll heal you. I don't know whether that's a fair interpretation of that or not, but uh, it seems like it could make some sense to me, considering who uh, our enemy truly is. Anyway, he made a serpent of brass and put it on a pole, and they looked at it, they lived. The children of Israel set forward and pitched in Oboth. You know, if we if we look at Satan and say, you know, that's where I've been, that's what I've done, then we have God there to heal us, to help us, because we've seen the snake and now can live. Should we read on? And see what else they did. <laughs> he doesn't give too many examples here in First Corinthians, but he does use those. Uh, Neither murmur you, as some of them also murmured, verse 10, and were destroyed of the destroyer. The last enemy is death, as P says in First Corinthians 15, and they died. So murmuring, complaining, griping, is something God has dealt with very, very severely in the past. Now, the point has to be made there, and Paul made it, and others did, that if you complain against the ones God sends, you are doing the same as complaining against God. It's very, very dangerous to open your mouth against those whom God sends. When they complained against Moses, God got very, very upset with them. When they complained against the apostles or didn't do as they said, God got very upset with them. So he works through those whom he sends. And he has always sent human beings with human foibles, human problems, human weaknesses, whatever there might be, they've always had it except for Christ. And he has said, in many, many places, I could do two or three sermons on it real easily, to be very, very careful about complaining against those whom God sends. I guess you better determine who God sent and who he hasn't sent, uh, because we're not supposed to complain really against any leadership in the church or in the world. Romans 13 makes that very clear. So we are to be very careful because... What are we dealing with? If we have a negative attitude, we like to murmur, bitch, and complain. That isn't helpful to anyone anywhere, is it? Who does that help? Nobody. It harms. We're not helping each other run the race. We're discouraging one another with our talk, our back talk, our murmuring and complaining. Does God know His leaders that he sends are imperfect? Yeah, he knows. Did he know Peter's troubles? Did he know Paul's troubles? Did he know all the apostles' problems and weaknesses? They had them. They all did. He knew them very, very well. He knew Moses' problems before he ever even let the burning bush go out there. 
He knew exactly what he was doing. He knew Jacob's, everybody's. But you got to send somebody, <laughs> you know, because he works through humans. But it's not our job to complain about what he does. That's his job to take care of those whom he sends, not ours. So don't murmur against Moses or against God. Now, all these things, verse 11, happen to them for examples, and they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. Now, it's interesting which examples Paul used. He could have used many, many different examples of how Israel erred in one way or another against God. But the ones that he used here were idolatry, fornication and adultery, uh, tempting Christ by their attitudes, and complaining. And he says all of these punishments occurred for all these offenses for us. So do we have these same problems? Yeah, we do. That's The church is full of them. Human beings are full of them. So, these particular examples he picked out to use for the, first, for the Corinthian church and wrote it down and God preserved it for everybody in the end time church. Especially now that the ends of the world truly are come. They weren't in Paul's day, but they are today. So it's even better now and more uh, instructive than it was even to those people. Wherefore, since this is the case, he says, let him that thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Now there is an admonition against self-righteousness, is what that is. Anyone who is self-righteous will, in some way or another, take on the attitude that he's okay. Now, I think we all understand that compared to Christ, we're not okay. So where does the self-righteousness come in? In comparison to others. Because we, in our judgment, are smarter or more converted or more knowledgeable than our neighbor. And therefore, we think we put ourselves on a pedestal above them and think we stand. Because I may not be much, but at least I'm better than you, you know? So be careful. When you think you stand, take heed lest you fall. Can you ever get close enough to God? No, it'll never happen. Not in this life. So if you think you're really close to God, you better take heed lest you fall. Because we are all so far, far short of the mark of the prize of the high calling of Christ uh, that we can never get close enough to God. We have to work at it 24-7. So let's be careful that we don't assess ourselves higher than we ought to do. So he goes on to say then in verse 13, There has no temptation taken you, but such is common to man. You know, there's no temptation 
as great as the one you are suffering at the moment. <laughs> I mean, other people have problems and other people have temptations, but man, yours is the worst. And it is so easy for any of us as human beings to find a justification for what we want to do. And there is no justification for what it is that we might want to do. I'm reminded of a country song just came to mind. How could anything be wrong would seem so right? You know? And that's, that's just some words of one that come. But if I thought about it, I could probably think of a lot of those songs like that. Where, you know, you're sinners, but I'm not. I, this is a special situation with me. This is okay because blah, blah, blah. That's never okay. It's never okay. Won't ever be. We cannot justify something that is contrary to God's law in any form or fashion. But each and every human being will try to do so. Well, these are different circumstances. Or, I, you know, surely you'll forgive me or uh, whatever. It reminds me of another song about this self-righteous lady that saw the guy sitting at the bar with this cute girl. and She started getting all over him, and he told her to go away. Uh, he knew he was sinning, and sinning ain't right, but me and the good Lord are going to have a good talk later tonight. <laughs> you know? <laughs> it's going to be all right. After I get rid of the girl, then I'll talk to God, and everything will be okay because he'll forgive me. And you can take, you'd be a self-righteous old biddy and go away. Well, he found a way to justify what he was doing and to send the religious woman away. Well, probably the religious woman shouldn't have been there in the first place, and he certainly shouldn't have been there in the second place. It just goes to show that human nature is the same everywhere, and uh, that's why they write songs about it. But nobody's tempted any more than anybody else. And God will make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. So what do you do when you have temptations? You go to God. And you ask Him for strength, for courage, for a way to escape. He will provide a way out of it so that you're able to stand it. And he will not lay anything on us which is greater than we can stand. Sometimes we think so. This is more than I can take. I can't handle it anymore. And we all, I suppose, get our craw full once in a while and think, I can't take anymore. And then we repent and turn to God and say, well, maybe I can. <laughs> I just did. Maybe I can so God gives us always the strength we need through the comforter that he sends. Wherefore, my, bre my dearly beloved, flee from idolatry. And idolatry can be defined as putting anything ahead of the true God. And self is our most common idol. Uh, you know, you, you don't get rid of an idol once and for all, it seems. Uh, you can put yourself ahead of God today, 
And you may not tomorrow, but day after tomorrow, you probably will again. So you put your idol away, and then you get it back out and play with it, and then you put it away, and then you get it back out and play with it again. Because we tend to put ourselves ahead of God. And we can pray, we can repent, and do better. And then we fall on our face again. That's just the way that human nature works. So, if you think you can put the idol of self away once and for all, you're kidding yourself. (laughs) Because self-worship comes back by the day, by the moment. But flee from idolatry, he says. Run from it. Anything that you put ahead of God for your own satisfaction, desires, or whatever, flee from it. He says, I speak as to wise men. Judge you what I say. He said, I'm I'm not telling you this because I think you're stupid. I'm telling you this because I think that you probably have a certain amount of wisdom and understanding, and uh, maybe you'll take what I'm saying and pay attention to it. Verse 16, the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? What do we put on a high pedestal and consider a blessing? What greater blessing can we have than the Spirit of God given to us through His death and the wine that we drink at Passover, which is there to absolve all sin to forgive us, to make us clean and white and pure before Him. How is it, really, that we can go to Passover and we can feel very sad, we can be sitting there asking God to forgive us of all of our sins and all of our mistakes in the past year and throughout our lives for that matter, but especially in the past year, And we can take that bread and drink that wine and say a prayer and ask for God's forgiveness. And then we walk out of there and we still are burdened and held back by things we might have done 2, 3, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years ago. Why do we choose to carry a burden on our back that was forgiven. I've made this point in many, many different ways, as does the Bible. Once sin is forgiven, it is washed away in the blood of Christ. But we indulge ourselves by feeling guilt and frustration and discouragement about our past, and there's not a thing you can do about it. It's selfishness to do that, is what it is. I want to feel bad today. I want to feel sorry for myself. I want to have a self-pity party, we might term it. Because there are times when we might be frustrated or discouraged, and we like to wallow in self-pity. Now, nobody else likes to see you wallowing in self-pity. It's disgusting. But you revel in it. 
at times. I want to feel sorry for myself. Things are so bad, I deserve to feel sorry for myself. What do you have to be sorry for? God's forgiveness? The blood of Christ spilled to forgive you so that you don't bear the penalty of sin? What do you have to be discouraged about and to feel sorry for yourself about? You're putting yourself ahead of God and worshiping yourself when you indulge yourself in a pity party. It's exactly what you're doing. Woe is me. Isn't that what Israel was doing? Woe is me. I don't have the food and the drink that I want. Woe is me. There's rocks in the trail. Woe is me. It's too hot today. Woe is me. We've been sitting here now under the shadow of this cloud, and now we have to get up and march. Woe is me. So we're putting our feelings in our own words and our own emotions ahead of God. He says to think on the positive. Go read Philippians 4.8. Read all the things he tells us to dwell upon. Thankfulness. Obedience. Love. Kindness. The fruit of the Spirit. So we choose instead to go contrary to what God tells us to dwell on and dwell on how bad I feel about me, poor pitiful me. That's not a godly attitude. Therefore, it's putting how you wish to feel at the moment ahead of, ahead of how God wants you to feel. So you're committing idolatry. First commandment. Tied to the other nine. Can't get away from it. God has no room. We have no room for murmuring and complaining. We might not be griping about the minister at that moment. We might not necessarily be in our own mind griping against God. We're just griping for the sake of griping because we want to feel bad for the moment. Instead of thinking on all the good things that God has done for us, we'd rather dwell on the bad. And that frustrates him when we do that. It frustrates him greatly. And he punished people very, very severely for feeling sorry for themselves and therefore denying what he was doing for them. He's given us his Holy Spirit to comfort us, to uplift us, to lead us, to guide us, to help us. And then we ignore it by feeling sorry for ourselves. So we leave Passover humbled, encouraged, thankful that we have the blood of Christ. And then how long is it before we feel sorry for ourselves again and start murmuring and complaining? Or, if not about yourself, how long before we start murmuring and complaining about somebody else? You know, if God forgave your sins over the years that you've committed, He forgave somebody else's too. So if you're not supposed to mention your own, and he said, I'm not going to mention them to you, so why should you 
because his will is that they be washed away and forgotten. And he said, I won't mention them to you again. So his will is that sin be covered by the blood of Christ and never be brought up again. Can we grasp that? You are going against God when you bring up your own sins of the past and get discouraged and frustrated over it and wondering if you can be in the kingdom of God because of your past. What can you do about your past? Not anything. Were you abused? Did you have miscarriages? Were you a hooker? Were you a whoremonger? Were you a drunk? Were you a this or a what? Whatever it is, you can't do a thing about it except don't go there anymore. It's all in the past. God said he forgives the past, and he won't mention it again. So who do you think you are to mention it yourself? Presumptuousness is as the sin of witchcraft. When you presume to bring up what Christ has forgiven, it's the same as being a witch, a worshiper of Satan. Do we get it? When you let yourself worry about sins of the past, you're presuming something that doesn't exist anymore. And if you do it to somebody else, you're doing the same thing. You are bringing up something they did 1, 2, 5, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. And you take it to God, and he says, what are you talking about? I forgave that. Why are you bringing that to me? That's gone. It's in the blood of Christ. So why are you talking about it? You're presuming it still exists. You're presumptuous. That person may have repented. That person may have stopped that. That person might be clean before God, having gone to Passover that year. So who do you think you are to bring up your past or theirs? I don't think I can emphasize this enough. Do we have faith in the blood of Christ for ourselves and for others, or do we not? You can't fix yesterday. All you can fix is today and tomorrow. It's the only chance you got. So he doesn't say, live in misery over your past. He says, overcome and grow in the future. It's all positive. <clears throat> Yesterday's gone. Lamentations tells us we get a new start every morning. So give yourself a new start and give your brother and sister a new start. And don't hold things over their head that they may have done yesterday or 30 years ago. I speak as the wise men judge you what I say. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? You know, he did not enjoy dying. It was not happy. It was very, very frustrating, and he felt totally forsaken of God, and he was because of your sins and mine. 
the bread which we break? Is it not the communion of the body of Christ? What did those two symbols do? They offered us spiritual forgiveness and healing and physical forgiveness and healing. So he reminds us, let's understand where we are. <clears throat> for we being many are one bread and one body, for we are all partakers of that one bread. Now he opened this chapter by saying they came through with Moses, baptized in the Red Sea, it was symbolic, and that Christ was with them to lead them and to guide them and to help them, but they all murmured and griped and complained and sinned and had to be destroyed. Now he's saying, I'm talking to you like you're wise and recognize that Christ is still with us and not only do we have him as our rock, we have his blood and his broken body as an even greater attestation to his being with us. This is even more meaningful than it was clear back then. And if they died back then for sin, what do you think is going to happen to us if we deny the body and the blood of Christ? Behold, Israel, after the flesh, are not they which eat of the sacrifice partakers of the altar? Yes, they went. They were praying before the altar when the man hauls another woman through. What say I then? That the idol is anything, or that which is offered in sacrifice to idols is anything? Something sacrificed to an idol, does that mean anything? A sacrifice offered to God means something. One offered to an idol means nothing. All right, let's say our self is the idol at the moment. And we want what we want, and we want it our way, and we want it now. Because we're selfish to the core as human beings. Now, if we sacrifice our relationship with Christ to get what we want, have we not made ourselves an idol? But I and, and what good? What good does it do? When we make ourselves an idol, we destroy our relationship with God. When somebody sacrificed a piece of meat to an idol, <clears throat> they had no relationship with God. So, what does that idol mean? That one means nothing. If we idolize ourselves, then that means something. That's important. But I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to devils and not to God. I would not that you should have fellowship with devils. So you don't partake of their religion. You don't partake of their religious broadcasts or their religious tracts. I read quite a bit on the alternative news. But if I see an article that says, I had this dream ten years ago and it's now happening in America, or I God gave me this vision, I don't read it. Because I figure it probably came from Satan. And I don't want anything to do with what could have come from Satan. 
And I know that every sermon given by a Methodist, a Baptist, a Presbyterian, a Mormon, or a Catholic, or a Buddhist, comes from Satan. That's where it comes from. So why should I listen to what they have to say? And sometimes it's sweet, and oh, there's such a nice spiritual lesson here. Yeah, they can come disguised as wolves in sheep's clothing. They look like sheep, they sound like sheep, but they're wolves because they know not the true God. So he says, I don't want anything to do with that. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils. You cannot be partakers of the Lord's table and of the table of devils. He says, our eye has to be single. It can't, we can't be double-minded, and no man can serve two masters. That's in the Sermon on the Mount. Can't serve two masters. You can't go to God and then go to the world for instruction. God did not give instruction through them. He didn't even give it through the leaders of the Jews, the Pharisees. He told them they worshiped the devil. So he was not going to partake of their religion. Did he eat with them occasionally? Yes, he did. Did he run them out of the temple? Yes, he did. Did he castigate them and tell them they were devil worshipers? Yes, he did. But he did not partake of their religion. A lot of people in the Church of God here in the last two, three, four, five decades have started following the Jews in a lot of ways. Not what Christ said. He can't. And they don't know. They don't believe what Christ said. He told the Pharisees, I'm, I'm disfellowshipping you because you're not following the true God. So people still believe the Jews have something to do with God, and they have nothing to do with God. They're worshipers of Satan. Judaism, the religion, is a worship of Satan. Christ said that very, very clearly. Don't partake of it. Do we provoke the eternal to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? You'd think by some some of the things we think, say, and do, we think we're ahead of God. So he says, all things are lawful for me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but all things edify not. Let no man seek his own, but every man another's good or wealth or so on. And he's talking about a particular thing here. Verse 25 explains that. Whatsoever is sold in the shambles, that eat, asking no question for conscience' sake. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Now, they had had an issue there with meats offered to idols. And he discussed that a little earlier, and we went over it. And he said, meat's meat. It really doesn't make any difference whether somebody killed it and set it up here to eat, or whether they killed it and worshipped their idol with it and then set it up here to eat, really makes no difference. It's You're not worshipping their idol, you're just eating meat that grew on a cow. And what they said over it really means nothing. It's like you get something that says kosher on it. Well, that might or might not mean that it has nothing unclean in it, but the fact that the rabbi blessed it doesn't bother me. I open the package and eat it anyway. Now, what's in it concerns me because I don't know whether it's going to be good for my body or not. But whether a rabbi blessed it, 
I could care less. And I know the rabbi worships an idol. He worships Satan the devil. Christ said that. Made it very clear. So you have a worshiper of Satan, a rabbi, who blesses your weenies, and you eat them anyway. Now, if it had been in the temple of Diana, we might throw up our skirts and run into the desert. What's the difference? There is no difference. It's just meat that God made. It's not talking about clean and unclean. It's talking about a clean meat here. So he says, I might eat it, I might not. It might be expedient, it might not be expedient, but it's lawful. It hasn't broken any command, the meat hasn't. hasn't changed it any. Now, the shambles, apparently, were just a meat market or a, a place where they sold food. Farmer's market might be similar, only this was in the city, and it might have had to do mostly with meat, the the Bible dictionaries all aren't very clear on it. They just say it was a meat market, basically. If you look it up in the Greek, <clears throat> that's all it was. <clears throat> now, I would feel less comfortable, I think, going into the temple of Diana and sitting down to eat it than I would buying it out in the market and taking it home and eating it, or if they cooked it there, eat it there. Just like I was more uncomfortable in a Masonic temple than I was in the Garden Club. And therefore I moved the church from the Masonic temple to the Garden Club. And I felt much more comfortable there. Uh, so they weren't actually going in there to worship Diana. Uh, they were just buying meat that was sold out there. So let's go and see what he says more about it. Whatever is sold in the market... Eat, asking no question for conscience' sake, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. He made it all. If any of them that believe not bid you to a feast, and you be disposed to go. So you have some unconverted uh, people that you know who invite you to a party, a feast, a dinner. And if you decide you'd like to go... Whatsoever is set before you eat, asking no question for conscience sake. You don't have to say to your host, well, did you kill this yourself and butcher it? Or did your neighbor butcher it? Or did you go down there to the shambles and was this offered to an idol? Because if it's offered to an idol, I'm not going to eat at your table. Now, you're going to give great offense to those people, right? He says, no, don't do that. Just don't even don't even ask where it came from. It's not about clean and unclean again. It's about meat offered to idols. But if any man say to you, this is offered in sacrifice to idols, eat not for his sake that showed it, and for conscience' sake, for again, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. So he says, if you go in, somebody's invited you to eat, you don't know if it was offered to idols or not, don't even ask. Don't worry about it. The meat's not going to hurt you. God made it. The meat itself won't hurt you. But now if somebody sitting next to you says, hey, you know what? That meat was offered to idols. Well, obviously, the person who said that to you would have a problem with it, or he would not have mentioned it to you. So Paul says, in that case, 
Just don't eat it. You don't have to make a big deal out of it, but just don't eat it because you might offend that person who obviously has a problem with it. So giving offense is a huge deal. Whether it was offered to an idol is not a big deal whatsoever. Conscience, I say, not your own, but of the other. Be concerned about their conscience. If they have an issue with it, uh, bow to that. For why is my liberty judged of another man's conscience? He says, I'm free to eat it. It doesn't make any difference to me. But there might be times when it isn't to edification to do what I have liberty to do because it might hurt somebody else's conscience. And when we defile our conscience, we have done what? Sin. So don't make somebody sin by offending them if they have a conscience problem about it. And this could apply to many, many things, not just meat offered to idols, because we don't deal with that one particularly, except maybe things that have been blessed by the rabbi. That one's still around. And the rabbi is a false prophet, a false teacher. Worship Satan. For if I by grace be a partaker, why am I evil spoken of for that for which I give thanks? He says, I can go there, I can buy meat at the market, and I don't have any question about it. I'm not going to ask him if it's been offered to an idol. I like that cut of meat, I'll buy it, I'll take it home, I'll eat it. Or if you cook it here, I'll stand here and eat it. Whatever. So I have this liberty. But if it bothers somebody, then I won't do it. And I, I can, he said, I can give thanks for meat offered to idols. Doesn't bother me. The idol is nothing. And the meat was created by God. So somebody saying their gobbledygook words over it doesn't bother me, but if it bothers somebody, I won't do it. Whether therefore you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Now I think uh, sometimes we've misinterpreted this, and I think Herbert Armstrong did for that matter, because when he would go to these big dinners with the Chinese or the Japanese diet or the rulers of the world, they would put creepy crawly things on his plate and serve it to him, and he would he would eat it because he didn't want to ask questions for conscience sake. But those were unclean things that he was eating and using this as his authority. Doesn't work. Because this was clean meat we're talking about here, which was edible. Now, if they put shrimp in front of you, God says don't eat that. <coughs> so you're going to obey God or man? I don't care if the Chinese emperor tells me eat this or die. God tells me don't eat this. So I think that this was misinterpreted and misused. Doing things God says don't do uh, very clearly. And using this as a justification. No. You don't, if there's any way to avoid offense, you don't give it. But if they ask you to do something that God says don't do, you cannot avoid the offense. If they come to you and say, 
you must worship on Sunday instead of Saturday, you can't put aside the offense. You have to say, no, I'm keeping the Sabbath. Sorry, you're going to kill me? Okay. You don't change the Sabbath just because somebody tells you you have to or you will die. You obey God rather than men. So if he says, don't keep the Feast of Tabernacles, you must keep Christmas, die first. If he tells you you must eat unclean meat or I'm going to cut your head off, hey, we're just physical. God can resurrect us and put our head back on and give us a better one. What's the big deal? big deal is we're putting ourselves ahead of God in that case and worshiping self. I worship my life and preserving my life ahead of God who can resurrect me in any case. No, you always obey God rather than man. But if something is optional, such as meat offered to idols, don't worry about it unless it bothers somebody. Then you don't have to... Uh, it, it doesn't matter. You just don't do it because of offense to them. So he says, Give none offense, neither to the Jews, nor to the Gentiles, nor to the church of God. Don't offend anybody. Three categories. He doesn't include the Jews with the church of God, you notice. He says the Gentiles, the Jews, or the church. Three separate categories. Don't offend anybody if you can help it. Even as I please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many that they might be saved. So, always obey God, put His laws first. But if it's something that is optional and you have freedom to do it, but it bothers somebody else, then don't bring it up. Don't mention it. You know, people are happily keeping Christmas. You don't need to go around telling them, well, that's pagan and that's sin and you shouldn't be keeping Christmas. It's not your job. Will that offend them? Most likely. Most likely. Then why do you need to make an issue of it? I read an article this morning where somebody said that they thought that uh, our president and vice president could easily be killed within the next 11 days because there are those who do not want them to give uh, the uh, State of the Union speech on the 29th, and Pelosi's trying to get it put off. Well, a thought ran through my head. I could send a note and tell this man that Isaiah 7 says we'll lose our two kings, and that Hosea 10 says that Ephraim will lose its king, and I'd have to explain who Ephraim was, and they wouldn't buy it anyhow. And I can show what the Bible says. Now, it doesn't tell me that it's going to be between now and January 29th, but it tells me it's going to happen. And that there'll be violence in the land, ruler against ruler, killing each other. It's very clear in Jeremiah fifty fifty one. So I thought about sending him a note and telling him, I think you're pretty close to the truth here, because here's what God says is going to happen. doesn't give a date, but it says it's going to happen. And I thought, no. Don't cast your pearls before swine, A. And B, 
if he tells the witnesses not to go to the world, but only to the church until the time comes, then what right do I have as a human being to take God's precious word and put it before them when he says it's not time to do that? And if it's not time for the two to do it, it's certainly not the time for any of us to do it. Right? So, I folded up my keyboard and put it away and said, I'm not going to do this because I don't think God wants me to. But, some of the things that these people are saying are going to happen, and the Bible says so. So I'm going to read what God has to say, but if somebody says, well, I have a prophecy, no, I don't even read those articles. I don't want my mind going there. I don't want any influence of Satan, if I can at all help it, to come my way whatsoever. And therefore, I don't care how... I mean, Satan knows the truth, and Satan could even, through some of those prophecies and dreams he gives people, he could give them some truth. But he's very likely to give them some error also. And he's more than likely not going to give them more error than truth. Okay? So we've got to try the spirits whether they're of God. And we must be very careful because God tells us to be repenting now. And when we repent and he forgives us and comes and blesses us, then we will do his will and build his temple and his city and then he will tell his church to go to the world and tell them what they need to be told, but not until. So we have to be careful. We don't want to offend the world, but we want to obey God above all. And if something's an optional thing, hey, I don't have to do that. I'm not going to offend you. No, no need in it. I'll just bypass that and go on about my business. I don't, when somebody says, did you have a happy Christmas? I don't say, you shouldn't even be keeping Christmas. Well, what good does that do? So I, I, I just pass it off somehow, off the cuff, and they don't pay any attention anyway. They just say it, and they don't expect a response, they didn't want a response, and they probably won't even hear your response. How many times has it been said, you walk up to somebody and they say, how are you? And I say, well, I killed my grandmother last night. And they say, oh, wonderful. So glad you had a good day. They didn't hear you. Don't offend or give offense. And let's certainly not be presumptuous and throw mud on Christ's blood. Very, very important.